What's up, peeps? New episode of the Ebb and Flow coming in hot. It's with my mom, Abby Britton, the wizard, the absolute master. It was super fun conversation. Could have gone on for hours, honestly. Um, there will definitely be more talks with mom. We're talking about her latest book, Uncharted Territory, a conversation with her mother, Estelle Parsons, my grandmother. Talking about acting, the spiritual journey, yoga, all the stuff we know and love. My mom is chock full of insights and wisdom. Really excited to share this episode with you guys. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at Quicksilver Scientific, some of the best liposomal delivery of adaptogens on the planet, like ginseng, ashwagandha, astragalus, everything you need for your vitality, your well-being. You can find it in their products. My favorites are Longevity Elite, The One, Nano Fuel, and Membrane Mend. This stuff works, you feel it in more ways than one. Use code EBBINFLOW, get yourself a nice discount on your next order. We've also got Onda, Onda Wellness, regeneratively farmed hemp, CBD tinctures that combine very potent and effective hemp oil with other adaptogens like ashwagandha and tulsi, chamomile, all sorts of good stuff. My favorite is Adios Anxiety. Use code EBBINB to get yourself a little discount on your next order there at ondawellness.com. Also, Sun Potion. Sun Potion started by my brother, Scott Lind. Awesome stuff. My favorite right now is the Pine Pollen. Pine Pollen is basically a testosterone replacement. So good for your hormone health vitality, inner strength, fire. Can't recommend Sun Potion enough. They've got an entire lineup of incredible products. Highly recommend them. Use code EBBIN20. Get yourself 20% off at your at checkout there. And then finally, this Sunday, last chance, the Wild King got a few spots left. Kicks off Sunday, September 3rd. Click the link in the show notes. Join us. This is a six-week men's workshop. I'm fucking stoked about it. And it's going to be a lot of fun, man. You guys have an excellent rest of your day. Enjoy this episode, and I'll see you all soon. Peace. You have unlocked the eternal link to internal source. The key of imagination. Your admission, access to the enlightened dimension. A gateway at the junction of darkness and light. The place at which the chaos of our conditioned frame of mind give way to a life in constant flux, only to be mastered through vigilant discipline. Peaceful times may come, testing times may go. This is the ebb and flow. What's up, peeps? We're at the ebb and flow. We're back in the saddle. It's a Britain family sit down. 
Still getting adjusted. Uh, super special episode today. I'm really excited about it. We've got mom on the podcast. Sweet. <laughs> Woohoo! The great and powerful Abby Britton. Yeah, welcome, in, welcome Thanks. mom. Thanks, boys. <laughs> Stoked to have you here. I was wondering what you would call me. What do you think I would call you? Mom. <laughs> yeah, mom. Um, so, first of all, it took us about two hours to get ready to do this episode. <laughs> of Family course. Um, but mom, I really, I want to talk to you about lineage, yoga, our family. And maybe the best place to start this conversation is with your, the recent publication of your book, Uncharted Territory. Yeah. Um, I think that's the best place to start and we can trickle down from there. And why don't you just start by telling everybody about your new book that just came out, Uncharted Territory. Let's start there. What is it about and how did you come to the place of wanting to write this book? Um, hi, guys. Thank hey, you Mom. for having me on the show, <laughs> finally. I think there's also a lot to say about female voice, too. Well... I think it, it absolutely, that's really what I want to talk about. And I think that the best play, the best entry point is let's start at her book because that will sort of, that will set the stage for where mom comes from and the road mom has walked to get to be the person that she is today. Sweet. Or the people I am today. I know. Yeah. But maybe not. We'll we could, see. We could be efficient. Well, succinct, we'll succinct. definitely have you on again, but let's just start here. So, I was a journalist for 25 years for major fashion magazines. Am I supposed to be looking somewhere? Just okay. look at us. Look, in the, look into the okay. ether. Okay. Look into the ether is what I'm comfortable with. <clears throat> so I was a journalist for uh, 25 years at major fashion magazines in New York, and I specialized in women's health. I worked extensively for Condé Nast and Rupert Murdoch and the Hearst Company. And I was... Um, I had an expertise in launching magazines. Um, what that means is if a company had a con concept for a magazine, they would call me and I would put together the concept and the team. And What would one of those concepts be? Well, for example... Um, 
a couple of them. One was a magazine called Mirabella, which was headed up by the incredible Grace Mirabella, who was the editor in chief of Vogue for many years. And she wanted to, to do a magazine that was not just fashion, but really good hardcore journalism for women. And then I headed up a magazine for Larry Flint, lots of stories there called Code, which was the first ever upscale magazine for men of color. Uh, and then I launched a magazine uh, with the Lewitt and Lewinter group called Mode, which was the first ever Vogue style magazine for women size 12 and up. So um, I cut my I cut my uh, writing teeth. I always, I always, I was meant to be a writer because my father was a journalist and um, I got the bug very early on and I majored in writing at Columbia University, also at Bennington College. And so, but I really felt I didn't have the juice to become a novelist. I wasn't interested. I like to write short things. And um, certainly I wrote a lot of health features. I broke the story on Fen Fen, which was a quote unquote diet drug for that women were dying from. It was not a diet drug. It was anyway, that's a long story, but um so I spent 25 years as an award-winning journalist. And at the same time, I had an ongoing bodywork practice and training practice. I've always been an athlete. I was a track runner in high school. and um, But I had this strange gift from when I was very little, I think, from the age of six, where I could, just by looking at someone standing in front front of me, I could tell from the way their, the geometry of their body was, what was wrong with them physically and emotionally. And I don't separate the two. Mm. And um, so that was kind of my innate gift to be able to see what was going on with people. And so I also, at the same time that I was coming up as a writer, I was coming up as a dancer and I uh, had the opportunity to study with Romana Romanowski, who was Joseph Pilates sidekick in New York while I was a journalist, I would sneak off to this little studio with her. It was the original Pilates. It wasn't kind of the bullshit fitness Pilates that we see today. Mm. And um, I realized working with this woman that I wanted to fix dancers as opposed to be a dancer. You were doing body work back then? Yes. I started my body work practice when I was 22. Really? Yes. Wow, Mom. I didn't even know that. Yes. Um, 
That's always been a big part of what I do. But the journalism really helped that because I got, I had this chance to interview hundreds of incredible doctors, scientists, healers Mm. on health subjects. So it was Uh being a journalist was much like. It was a studying. Yeah, it was a study project that could really, um, that really enhanced my body work Mm -hmm. and the sessions that I was doing. And um, so I did that. I I had that job as a journalist, mostly because you guys were little and I needed to raise you and I needed to have a job. And my grandmother, Eleanor Ingeborg Matson, uh, Swedish, very wonderful woman, said to me early on, if you're a woman, you always have to have three jobs. Mm. So I always did. I had the journalism, I had the body work, and then I was also teaching fitness classes. So movement and writing were always the things that kept me together. And... Um, I grew up, my mother's an actress. She's the Academy Award winning actress, Estelle Parsons. She won Best Supporting Actress for Bonnie and Clyde. And then the next year she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her role in Rachel Rachel. But she's very much a theater actress. So I also had this other wild part where... I grew up in theaters. So I spent, because, you know, she was a working actress and super poor. We didn't have a lot to eat a lot of the time. And um, she was divorced, so a single mom and an actress. And in those days, that really stacked up against you. So my childhood was very wild. I, you know, my... Babysitters were, uh, you know, uh, night nighttime cafes. I would sleep on on the in the booths in the nighttime cafe after mom's show. Or my sister and I, I have a twin sister, Martha Auntie M, who um, is my partner in crime, and we just had bicycles and we rode. You know, we rode everywhere in the dark. We rode miles a day to get to where we wanted to go. We were super expert bullfrog catchers and turtle catchers. And um, so that also informed my childhood, too, a kind of... It wasn't normal. I mean, it was just wild and free, no bedtimes, you know, find what you could to eat. And I... One of my refuges was also being with animals. So I became all animals, turtles, frogs, horses, dogs. I trained horses for a while. Um, I had my own horse. Um, So I also, because I was a little bit left of center as a child, I always had a lot of... um, relationships with animals and that made me very very happy um so that got me interested in 
um, the way animals respond to each other and speak to each other. And so I got very interested in uh, Native American medicine at an early age. We we're um, we grew up with my aunt and uncle. Often my sister and I lived with other families. And we grew up with my aunt and uncle on Lake Winnipesaukee in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. And that was Abenaki country. And I decided that uh, I was an Abenaki, that I had just come out, grown out of the earth, um, which my mother confirmed at your wedding, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, she did. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my mother's thing is if you think it and believe it, it is. So that's wonderful. Um Anyway, I, um, because I was a journalist and a, a well-known one at that, um, mother came to me about 10 years ago and she was trying to write a book about her accomplishments in the theater as opposed to movies and her acting process. And so... Well, had she been approached a handful of times by writers she had to had do an, the biography? Yes. She, she had, basically, like, destroyed all of them, so... <laughs> well, she had a number of writers <laughs> that she had hired... And it just wasn't working because my mother has a really big personality and um, needs to be translated. And these people seem to want to do what she called a commercial book. My mother is really anti-commercial. Yeah. She's an artist at her core. It's interesting. Yeah. To hear Grammy put that way. Yeah. Because I'm not, I'm like that. Yeah. I'm totally anti-commercial. Well, I think it's in many ways the only way to go in life is... Um, I think as an artist in particular. Yeah. I mean, you f- you have this compulsion and you have to go with that. I mean, you know, acting is a very odd career because a lot of people go into it wanting to be famous. and. Yeah. That's the worst possible reason. Yeah. Um, so, um, and mom and I had also been really incredible road dogs. We took so many road trips together to theaters all over the country and all over the world. So when she came to me 10 years ago and said that she had had a couple of writers trying to work on this book and they just weren't working out. And would I write it? I immediately said yes, because as a journalist, I thought this is just an incredible opportunity to sit down with this fascinating woman. You know, as a journalist, I was kind of able to keep myself detached Mm-hmm. Uh, because as I said, mom and I always had a very fiery relationship. We're both two really strong, direct, outspoken personalities. And um, so I was really excited 
And then I sort of went home, which I always do when a project that I know is going to be important. I went home and just thought I have to take a nap for 10 days because I can't believe I've agreed to do this. So you hadn't even started yet. No, we hadn't even started, (laughs) but I just, every giant project I've ever done, uh, I know it's going to be big because I always feel like falling asleep. That's my response to, uh, Mm -hmm. animation and chaos. I just want to go to sleep. So, um, I took my nap and then we scheduled three weeks to, uh, work on the book. And, um, this is like 10 years. This was 10 years ago. And the first thing she said to me was, I, my question was, well, what would you like to talk about? And she said to me, well, I can't talk about this. I'm offended that you'd ask me anything. And I thought, oh boy, this is not going to go well. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm kind of a dog with a bone. So I just sat and asked her questions and one, one question would lead to an answer that would open another question. So it was probably the most grueling three weeks of my life because I had to confront our relationship Mm. and also maintain my professionalism and also write the book well. Um, Having come out of such incredible institutions as a journalist, I have a lot of respect for the written word. And um, it was really difficult. It was really a challenge to to separate myself from my mother. So I wrote the book. Uh, sent it to her, put it in a drawer in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, and forgot about it. I never wanted to see it again. I, I think just, you gave it to me at one point. Yeah, I, I probably it. I probably gave you. Yeah, you I had, had an original copy. For like two years. Yeah. So I I just. So you came away from that three weeks with a a book written. Yeah, a pretty full, much. Uh, no, it was a full manuscript. It was the full manuscript from beginning to end. Uh huh. And just wonderful idiosyncratic stories about her life and our travels together, and the book really beca- became kind of like Jack Kerouac's On the Road in many ways because. It's a travel book because when you're the child of an actor, you're on the road a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's a book about a mother-daughter relationship and how to live through that and come full circle and really love each other. And it was also first and foremost about her work. So the book contains 
just pure uh, dialogue from her talking. I just would turn the mic on and let her talk. And a lot of times I'd run after her. And when she'd be, when we'd be at family dinner, she'd start talking and I'd just turn my tape recorder on. Mm. Um, because that was kind of easier to get the interview done that way. And I always had my tape recorder in my pocket because I realized sitting face to face was not really going to work because that's not how she rolls. So I forgot about it. Well, you also had a fear. Yeah, I had, um, I had this big fear that if the book got published, she would die. Uh-huh. Um, and I valued those three weeks so much that I, th- I think subconsciously I just thought I can't have this book hit the world because, mm. you know, I thought she would die after it and, of course, you know, she's 96 now and shows zero signs of slowing down. Uh, in fact, she's doing a play this summer somewhere, and then she's doing a giant production in September. And she's insanely active. Yeah, she's she just keeps going. Well, I want to throw out a couple things that, Your book is also really an incredible articulation of the artist's way of family. Yeah, very much so. A family of artists and how a family can exist through art. And how art becomes like the atmosphere of the family. So I think that is really beautifully articulated and it's such an adventure story. And then also, you know, anybody, well, there's not many people who know Grammy the way we know her, but you know, one of the, one of the big challenges with writing this book is if you've ever asked Grammy, Grammy, tell me about acting. That's it's you're going to be met with. Oh, it's not going to happen. Yeah. She's going to say it's disrespectful (laughs) to talk about acting. I don't talk about acting. I'm offended by that. I'm offended. Like you said, I'm offended by the idea that you think we could talk about acting. Acting is not something that can be talked about. It has to be exercised and done. So, I mean, you know, Grammy is an absolute force of nature. And, you know, the fact that you were able to, and I think it probably goes to your life as a yogi, as a yogini. I mean, you, because that was the ultimate yoga for you to sit there across from Grammy. She's shutting you down in this hilariously ironic dynamic of her wanting to write this book or wanting you to write this book. And then you're asking her questions and she's refusing to answer or refusing to talk. And then 
what you've told me about sitting there in those silences, just sitting across from her. And you talk about it in the book, like two, two lionesses, like, you know, gauging the, yeah. the other. Yeah. And just being able to sit in that silence. And then something happens where she just sort of starts to bloom and speak about something that's moving through her. Well, it's interesting that you say this because um, 10 years ago when I started the book, I was still in that phase of my life where I was afraid of her. Mm. And I took everything that she said personally, and I talk about that in the book. So what happened really quickly, because I want to get to the next three weeks that happened, was I'm a member of the Hay House community, which runs Balboa Press. I'm a member of the writers community there. And um, I got wind of a contest that they were launching that the contest, the prize was a book contract. And so... Um, I, there was this incredible section in the book on Dario Fo, who's a Nobel Prize winning author and playwright and actor. His, he's called Il Buffo in Italy. And he was like a minstrel and made theater for the people, just an incredible man. And mom and I had gone to find him in Italy. So this is way before cell phones. Yeah, way before cell phones, the internet. We you just, were just on a fucking and, mystical quest. Yeah, and at the time, she called me up and she said... And this guy was also... Him and his wife were both like revolutionaries against yeah, the fascists. Yeah, they were part of Scorso, which is um, a community in Italy that creates relief programs for the poor, the working class. So Il Buffo was on her agenda. So part of the reason the book is called Uncharted Territory is that my mother never stuck to traditional ways of doing theater. She would find material and then go. And so... Il Buffo, Dario Fo, and Franco Rame were not allowed in the U.S. because of possible communist affiliations. And she said, okay, we're going to go. So she called me because she knew I spoke some Italian. And How old were you? Um, I was, was <laughs> before you guys. I was in my early 20s, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. and So it was after college. Yeah, it was after Columbia, and I didn't really. I like sort of. I had a boyfriend who was Italian, so I was kind of, you know, I had a lot of good vabene. Um, but you know, I'm kind of um, a language nerd, so. Um, anyway, so I spoke more than she did. Let's put it that way. So we got on a flight went to Italy, found Dario Fo. We literally went from restaurant to restaurant to espresso bar to espresso bar asking, 
where he was and everyone knew him in Italy. So we would go from, um, you know, town to town and they'd say, Oh, he's going to be over there in Gubbio. And then we'd get to Gubbio and they'd say, Oh no, he was here last night. You have to go to the sea. So that's what we did. And that's how our life was. We just went in pursuit you need to finish the story of how you found him because you wrote it's such a great part of the book. Yeah. So mom and I were also in huge conflict and I think we were driving a, a Fiat and so you're in a tiny it car. was basically we had no idea where we were going and we fought the entire way. Yeah, it's yeah, total movie. Yeah, we just had we. It was it was so much conflict. I'm I'm shocked the car didn't explode. Martha didn't go. No, I was always kind of mom's road dog in those years because Martha was studying ballet and very serious about that. Uh Anyway, so we finally get to this seaside town. She had the name of a pharmacy where. Foe would use the telephone because he did not have a telephone in his house. And he went everywhere by bicycle. He hated cars. He hated driving. Well, another little, just like a a little piece of context, which is really powerful, is another piece of context, which is really powerful about Dario Foe and Franca Rame. Mm -hmm. She was kidnapped yeah. She was kidnapped this by was, like fascists. Yeah. And like thrown in a van, hood over her head. Yeah, burned with cigarettes. Burned with cigarettes, raped, raped. Left on the side of the road. So this is like real shit. Like, they yeah. Were, like we they were, were actual like revolutionaries. Yeah. So we were going into that territory. And she was an amazing woman because a month later she was up writing plays again. It's crazy. So my mother re- was really interested in this kind of, in in Sanskrit, we call it rasa. She was really interested in the deep flavor of work. And these two people had that, uh, that deep flavor. So we drive into this town called Chesanatico, which is basically a, on, um, on the Adriatic Sea, and we get in there, and it's literally all sunburned Germans with, like, you know, name tags, and I just think, we're not going to find this guy. We go to the pharmacia, and it's closed on Vacanza. So I'm like, oh, my God. So we go up to our room and we have like one of the worst fights we've ever had. I still remember it. I don't know what it was about, of course. And but just, you know, that fiery transformative relationship, which is part of all relationship, you know, in order to transform, you have to combust. And. So we put on our bathing suits and we go down to the beach and, you know, we look up and there's this woman who's like six feet tall, like a giraffe with stiletto heels on the beach. And, you know, she's unstable anyway. So the stilettos and she has a bikini, a navy blue bikini, high 
blonde hair on her head. She's in her 50s with giant sunglasses. And at first I look at her and I think that's who I want to be. <laughs> and then she starts going, Dario, Dario. And it turns out it's Franca Rame. Uh-huh. So we had just like driven in. But that's it. I mean, that's the... That's the artist thing. I just want to say that you go off the map, you have a purpose, and something unseen directs you. Mm. And that's basically why this book is called Uncharted Territory, because without, you need two things in life. You need to not question what you're compelled to do. Mm. And you must go off the map to do it. Mm. You must have a sense that you're moving into the unknown. You have no idea what's going to happen, but you're compelled. If you're not compelled, don't fucking do it. Mm. But if, if you have, it's, this is what's called Dharma in Sanskrit. It's a, it's a purpose that is undeniable, but it's not easy it's it requires complete explosion and if you do, and it's not it's not um it's not strange that my mother and i spent that entire fucking trip short of fist fighting because the entire trip with this purpose that she had to find this extraordinary writer and his wife, it had to be accompanied by fire. You know, so my my understanding of life is that if your purpose doesn't come with some fire, I wonder what it's going to mean when you get there. Mm. I really wonder what it's going to mean because in my experience, nothing truly amazing happens without a lot of shit falling apart. Mm. Um, and and that, to me, is how you find your inner compass. And, you know, the when I got wind of this contest, I thought, you know, I have to enter this contest. And I had, like, one chapter of the original book. I think I got the manuscript from you. Uh-huh. And... Yeah, I gave, <clears throat> I found it in my drawer. Yeah. You had given it to me. Yeah. I'd like tucked it yeah. first on my desk in my office and then like it made its way into a drawer. Yeah. And I was cleaning stuff out one day and I pulled it out and I was yeah. like, oh, and I texted you, I think. And I said, hey, mom, I have this yeah. manuscript. Do you want it? Yeah. And then at the same time. My sister said to me, I found this manuscript. My sister is the artistic director at the Actors Studio in New York. Talk about walking through fire. Um, But, um, you know, because being the daughter of Estelle Parsons and trying to be an actress, I don't even know what that's like. I was like, don't even... I would never even think about being an actress with that lineage. But... um, (laughs) So my sister found the manuscript and she texted me right after you did. And she said, you have to publish this book. Uh And that was the same time that the contest came up. So I sent them the chapter on Dario Fo, And 
if you know Hay House, Hay House basically... Uh, Louise Hay. Louise Hay, who's one of the... She was my mentor as a young body worker because she was the first person to connect that our emotional, physical, and spiritual lives intersect in ways that must be acknowledged, that must be acknowledged. And she wrote this incredible book called You Can Heal Your Life. So it was a strange like vortex of like, oh, this is Louise. Hey, I'm a body worker because I make my money as a as a healer. Worst word on the planet today because everyone fucking thinks of themselves as a healer. <laughs> but um, never mind. Um so I thought, okay, Louise, hey, this thing, I'm going to send the Daria Faux thing. They publish only books like Wayne Dyer, God Rest right. His Soul, incredible. Carolyn Meese, uh, Dr. Joe Desenza. I mean, incredible people. And I thought, okay, I'll just send it. And <clears throat> a couple months later, I get an email from them, which I delete and then I think, oh, I think it's about contest time. And I get this, I like, I'm writing them to tell them that I deleted their email. And then somehow or another, I find out that we, that the book has won first prize. And I'm like, holy shit, now what do I do? Because I had this manuscript, it was written 10 years before when mom and I were in total insanity and now I'm not in insanity. Now, you know, I have this incredible seat of an elephant. I mean, you know, I can just sit and be like, okay, whatever. You'll talk at some point. So I called mom up and I said, this book just won this prize. So I have to come back to New York for three weeks. This was a fascinating process. And what I will tell you is that we cut about the page. The book is very small. It's a quick, easy read. Thank fucking God. Um, because of people's attention span right now for reading, thanks to Instagram and social media. Um, so we cut about 50 pages out of the book. Um, I was a completely different person because of my own personal life experiences and the path that I'd gone down. I'd gone to grad school for yoga science and philosophy, gotten a, gone to India, had a special certificate in, in yoga therapy. So I had also, you, you have to understand that at this that this was all an intersection of the same thing that I've always been through of body work, working to heal people and my actually giving that a na name by becoming one of the few uh, masters in yoga or the yogic way in this country. I actually you know, 40 years after beginning my practice, I finally went to school for it and legitimized myself. And then at the same time, this book won this contest. So, uh, so we got back together for three weeks and 
you know, again, so I just want to stop a minute because one of the principles I live by and my students hear me talking about this all the time is something called the Vedic arc. And I'm completely simplifying the text, but the Vedic arc goes like this. It goes chaos, acceptance, new practices, right rhythm and vision. And the new practices basically means community. And so I had the vision. Can we go back? Yeah. It's like chaos. You find yourself in chaos. Beautiful. It's like you always say, Oh, you're in chaos. Yeah. My thesis was called. Yeah. My thesis was called. If you're in chaos, I'm happy for you. Right. Yeah. So you're in chaos or anything, because this could be a situation too, right? This yeah. could be from the macro to the micro. Yeah. It's, the universe to the or individual. Or it's just in your mind sitting there in 10 minutes going, oh my God, my life is great. What the fuck? It's everything's falling apart. Then you come into acceptance. Yeah, you come into acceptance of exactly what is. You start with, you start exercise practicing new practices yeah new you only do new practices when everything else you've been trying to do doesn't work and stopped working yeah so you start doing new practices you Mm -hmm. get into right rhythm Mm -hmm. so you get back into rhythm of okay right we're back to balance right and then what? What's vision? Well, the that the be, final is that like rebirth. It's, or? Well, it's interesting because um, in Sanskrit it's called um, asat, which is chaos. Ah, sat. Ah is without truth, and then sat, which is acceptance of truth. And then yajna, which is community practice, practice, but also that implies a sacrifice, a burning down whatever you've been carrying so and getting starting, rid of the old, getting rid of the old. Outdated. You start new, yeah, uh huh. And then the the final two pieces are something called ruta and dahi. So ruta is the root word of rhythm in Sanskrit, uh-huh. finding a rhythm. But dahi is a very interesting word because if you look at the eight limbs of yoga, there's a lot of dahi. There's dharana, dhyana. And dahi actually implies dharma, which is purpose, which goes back to this idea of what are you compelled to do? So the implication of this Vedic arc is that through chaos, you find what you're compelled to do and you start practicing it. And uh, you end up from the doorway of chaos, you end up, you accept it, you find the truth. You're like, oh shit, I'm in chaos. You know, this is not working. And I got to do something new. Notice that decision-making processes is not included in here. Uh The idea is that 
Um, there is some, and I'm not going to get airy fairy here because I believe everyone has their own belief system. I believe in animals and family. Um, so, but it's one of the most critical things that I've learned at the age of 68, right? With a lot of experience and, you know, uh, lineage, you talk about lineage. I mean, our original lineage from 1656 is that of witches who were, uh, the, the, their lives were at stake. They both were accused of being witches, Elizabeth Hart, Mary Bliss, and going to be burned at the stake. Both of them were women who were imprisoned for six months. So I have this strong belief that comes from a long time ago that we do not make real decisions in life. What we do is we experience, we have a response, and then we go. And that is basically what uncharted territory is about. My mother would grew up in a New England Protestant family about as bigoted, about as women-hating, about as alcoholic as you can get, about as close-minded. And she uh, was... Shattered, she She was taken to the theater at the age of six, and she went, oh, this is what I'm doing. Mm. This was not a decision on her part. Mm. It was brought to her, and... It was so anti what her family had set up for her to do. She was going to be a politician. She went to law school. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what she was going to do. She was not made for this at all. She was about as white New England Protestant as you get. And yet... She decided to go to New York and be an actor, which in those days was about tantamount to being a whore. Um, and, you know, so a lot of the book, Uncharted Territory, is about that. There is um, an ancient map, and you can look it up on the Internet. But there, there is a very ancient map that uh, on that, on one edge of the map is there's a phrase it's hic sunt leones and it says here are lions mm. so in the ancient times you could not go beyond right. the edge you of didn't that want to map go to that because place. here here are the lions and when i was writing when I went back to, I, I was like, mom, we have to write this book right now. And I didn't have any time for fear. The universe carried me. And, um, you know, what I realized was that her entire life was Hiksunt Leonis, that she, despite everything she was taught and supposed to do and the decisions that had been made for her, these things were not where she was going. Mm. She was going to go off into the uncharted territory and find out what she needed to know that would feed this compulsion. So, you know, when we say chaos as a doorway, I have to 
when people come to me or students come to me because I've been teaching yoga for so long, when they come to me and I, and they say, Oh my God, life is this. I'm like, Oh my God, what did you call on? What have you called on? Because it's always something you've called on. Like if you're in the middle of chaos, you called on it Mm. to have a transformation You may not have known what transformation you want to have, but you made a transformation Mm. and you made an SOS call out into the whatever it is that makes those leaves out there and makes my turtles in my pond and made my beautiful Gus and my beautiful you, whatever it is out there that made all of these things, you know, the house, the pillows, the smells, I don't know, our screw ups. You know, whatever it is that made all these things, you called that. Mm. So if you think that chaos is random and why me? Mm. No, 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 no. You are making a big mistake. Mm. You just were unawakened, Mm -hmm. covered up, unaware of a life-changing force that you fucking needed. Mm. I have people around me right now who are one person in particular who is in the hugest crisis of their life. I mean, I, I, when I say huge, it's about to hit the newspapers. And I was like, wow, look at what you called in, (laughs) you know, wow. Total shame, public humiliation. But wow, that's a big lesson. And the universe just hit you over the head with her motherfucking pocketbook to make you wake up. <laughs> I mean, you know, and and this comes to accountability. Mm. You know, we can never say, oh, my God, why this happened to me? You know, that is not an option in this life. Mm. This is not an option. The only option is to say, I called in this and shit needed to blow up. And now I'm going to pick up the pieces that I don't want and move forward. The problem is when you get into the cyclical thinking of, I'm going to blame that guy. Mm. I'm going to blame this. This didn't work out for me. I mean, when I decided to become a yoga teacher, I had had those jobs because of what my grandmother said. And, you know, walking in... Being a journalist. Yeah, being a fashion journalist uh and walking into the building and people looking at me up and down in the elevator and, you know, wondering if my Prada was real. Mm. Like that was what was important. Mm -hmm. And one day I was just like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And I decided this was like 19 years ago. And I decided I was going to commit to body work and yoga. We were before that making about, and I say we, because my money's your money, we were making about $200,000 a year. I made this decision. And the next year I made $19,000. But you know what? I was super happy. 
But I couldn't not do it. I had to blow up my life. Mm. I just had to leave that path and do something that was compelling me, you know, and we had a great life and things, you know, the, the problem is, and I, I say this a lot, never, never shake your finger at chaos, mm. you know, never shake your finger at it. Just pick up the pieces that you want to pick up and leave the rest behind. And basically, that's what this book is about. It's about going off the beaten path because you're compelled to. And once you're compelled to this, to do this, you do it and shit falls apart. You cannot say, I took this path. Why is shit falling apart? Mm. Because the shit falls apart because it has to fall apart. So your ass will be serious about the path you've taken. Mm. Because if you're not, as soon, as soon as things go sideways and it's hard work, you know, you're going to be like, well, fuck that path. I'm only making 19000 this year. No, that's not what you do. You go, oh, this is great. You know, one Thanksgiving... We, I did not, I had $9. <laughs> I had $9 in my pocket and I thought it's Thanksgiving. This is not going to happen. We are not having thanks, no Thanksgiving. Cause I really believe in Thanksgiving. And you know what? I opened my front door and there were fucking bags of groceries from my friends. Hmm. We had like two turkeys. We had all the stuffing. People came over. I mean, that's what's real. Yeah. You know, that is what's real. What's and the, um, what's the thing at the end of your email? What's that tagline you have? Oh, we cannot know our world until we have a compass that can chart ourselves. Or we cannot chart our world until we have a compass compass which charts a world the world we know i forget yeah uh theodore spencer well that's interesting because that's like a motif then for you yeah and i feel like that's very much who you are and um you're very much about you know looking at your history your you know, you redirected our family with the work you've done. So it seems like no coincidence that you write a book called Uncharted Territory. Yeah. You know, because, you know, like you're talking about with going from this very established career into a new career, that was Uncharted Territory. Being an alcoholic to living a life of sobriety and recovery, that was uncharted territory. So I think it's very much, and whether that's in our family lineage, which I believe it is, right? You know, we have a family lineage, a fa uh, kind of a family dharma of people that are explorers of mind, body, spirit so i think it's no coincidence that this has come up and it's a book that you wrote called uncharted Ter territory um because 
I always, whenever you send an email, I always look at that hmm. tagline there, which is about charting territory. Um, and well, I think that's an interesting thing. Well, it's mm -hmm. interesting because, you know, my alcoholism was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You know, in 1978, uh, I was 22 and I uh, institutionalized myself because, you know, I woke up one morning from a run, you know, still drunk from 10 days before with multiple self-inflicted stab wounds on my body. Like life was just a fucking mess. And I thought, this has got to stop. And I went to the Payne Whitney Clinic, and which is, you know, these towering walls on the Upper East Side. And... I went to my first AA meeting there and the woman was like 80 years old, white hair. She had a pink suit. She was from Connecticut. She could not have been further from my kind of ragtag, intellectual, wild human self. And she told her story and I was like, uh, it was magic. It was like the curtain went up. She told a story of such depth and weight that I realized that I had this family disease of alcoholism. So I got sober really young. And um, I stayed sober for 20 years, built this incredible life as a journalist and a body worker. And then... Uh, after 20 years, I picked up again because I'd gotten away from 12-step meetings. And same shit happened, you know? Wrecking cars drunk, driving drunk with you guys in the car, breaking into houses like, you know. Got arrested on an airplane. Got arrested on an airplane. That was, okay. All right, you got a hard out? Yeah. Okay. All right, well... Are you guys going to continue? This is a big... I feel like we could... <laughs> I think we'll do, we'll have to do another part. Do you guys want to continue? Yeah, we can continue okay. for a little bit. I love you. Love I love you. you. Bye. Yeah, we'll continue for a little bit, wrap up. Yeah, I can wrap up this part. Well, that's good, Mom. I mean, we're definitely going to have to have another episode entirely, but because there's just so much good in here. Bye, Are you pumpkin. See Mom before I don't know if I will. What time are you guys leaving? Flights at 9.30. Okay. We're going to head to the, be at the airport about 8. Okay. I love you. Love you. Have fun. We'll call you when we yeah. get to New yeah. York. You Please smell do. yummy. Love See you, brother. See you, man. Love you, dude. Love you. See ya. I'll see you later. Okay. All right.
Oh, I like it with the doors. With the things open. That makes it not feel like a dungeon. So what's happening? So... We've taken a small break. Yeah, we took a small break. We're good. Oh, yeah. So I got arrested in an airplane. I was on my way to New New York to interview Danny Glover. (laughs) And the airplane was delayed. And so... You sat at the bar. I sat at the bar, never intending to drink. And then one thing led to another. I picked up a drink. But it wasn't one thing that led to another. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, it was you that were primed. I was primed. Um, I was not living any type of spiritual life. I was um I needed an awakening is what happened. Mm. And I was going down a path that was not good Mm. and was very self-centered. And I would say you're probably also over the fashion, the world of fashion. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. There was like, I was not feeding myself in any way. Right. You weren't heeding that inner compass saying, we're done with this. Yeah, there was something going on inside me that was really profound. And I was ready for a change, but I could not figure out how to make a change because I needed to be the breadwinner in the family. Mm. And so... uh, Apparently, I made a call to the universe... And ended up arrested. And (laughs) I remember I got thrown into this detox. You know, this was not a fancy detox. I've never sort of ended up in a fancy detox, but this was fucking hardcore. And I was like, wow, this greatest thing that ever happened to me. Mm. I got I got a moment where time can stand still and I can get better. And that was very much I was 43. That was very much the beginning of I will say my the, I, I want to say it was the beginning of my yogic journey mm. and my 12-step journey, which to me, I mean, if you look at any of the ancient texts in yoga, the fundament of 12 steps is in there. Mm. Um, for example, the first of the eight limbs is how we treat others. Mm. The second is how we treat ourselves. The third is asana, which basically is defined as the seat you take in life. And I mean that with weight and depth, the seat. Who are you? 
But also it's an interesting word because in Sanskrit it has a quality of taking action. So um, I needed to change how I was treating others, my family first, my relationships, then how am I taking care of myself, my food, my rest, my sleep? Um, what actions, what seat was I taking in life? I mean, here I was winning all these awards and I was just like, I didn't even show up to the award ceremonies, Uh you know? Uh And, you know, the next is how you breathing, how you breathing, Mm. you know, are you paying any attention to that? Because without breath, there's no digesting life properly. I mean, the breath and the, the lungs and the stomach are so closely interrelated and to the way our brain functions that, you know, if you're not breathing, you're not digesting. Mm, you know, there's metabolic fires that have to be um, ignited through uh, awareness of the breath. That's why so much of yoga, you know, originally it was just meditation and that sort of blew out all the towns because all the men were disappearing. And then it that's classical yoga. And then it became the tantra. You know, and the Tantra include things like breath work and the body and how are you treating your body and relationship. Um, Well, it's interesting to think about. It's so scientifically, physiologically true about the breath. If you're not breathing, you can't digest. Because if you're not breathing properly. Yeah. You're in the constant sympathetic state of yeah. your nervous system. Exactly. Fight, flight, yeah. freeze, fix. Yeah. And only when you're in parasympathetic, the parasympathetic state of your nervous system is rest and digest. Exactly. I mean, it's not a mistake that it says that, rest and digest. Which is all a matter of how are you breathing? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> how your nervous system functions is completely a manifestation or an expression of your connection to your breath. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I studied so much yoga. I studied from a textual point of view, from a practice point of view. I I live what I call a yogic life, which means I live in what's real. And I practice rightness, rightness of attitude, rightness of communication, rightness. You know, I'm crazy still, but whatever. Um, but I want to say that in my studies, what I've discovered, <clears throat> and I've had so many opportunities to interview real yogis. I mean, in, in California, it's super hard because there's so many fucking two hour teacher trainings. And I'm like, please get me away from these girls on Instagram who are fucking doing backbends. And, you know, when they're 30, they're going to be crippled. And also they're just showing their asses. You know, it's like, what's that have to do with yoga? I don't mind it, but, you know, come on, (laughs) don't make it a yogic practice because you're 20 and you can do a backbend or drop back handstand. I I don't really care. 
But what I want to say is the great sages of Hatha Yoga, Hatha Yoga, meaning the yoga that includes everything, how you treat people, how you treat yourself, uh, movement practice, breath practice, what you focus on, what your relationship to the divine is, detachment from bullshit. Sorry to say that, but you know, if y'all are feeding yourself negative relationships and bad food, that's, that's part of your detachment practice. You know, you can't live a yogic life and still be complaining that, you know, so-and-so is doing such and such and it's their fault. It's you, you know, part of the practice of yoga is detachment. And then it gets to samadhi, which is in, in Sanskrit, that's translated to bliss, but really what it is, is a joyfulness in every moment mm. or an acceptance, good or bad. It's like when you say, oh my God, chaos came in. Thank you. Mm. This is a good thing. Mm -hmm. You called it. Your life is going to change now. But my point is that um, I... Um, the, in in my experience of some of the greatest yoga teachers, and I say that different from instructors, the one thing they say is, how are you breathing? Mm. What's your breathing practice like? Mm -hmm. And... You know, it's interesting because I just went through this five-week hot yoga training for the out of the Bishnu Ghosh method, also known as Bikram. And um, the the well, there are two important things I learned in that. One was how to drink water and chew ice while lying down. Um, the other thing was the only thing that gets you through discomfort is attending to your breath. Mm -hmm. Because when you attend to your brain, when you attend to your breath, I learned this with massively brilliant scientists and doctors when I was in India with Loyola Marymount. Um, when you attend to your breath, what you can digest in life becomes absolutely clear. And I don't say that just as the food just uh -huh. in terms of the food you eat, but what conceptually, what can you digest in your life? Mm -hmm. I could not digest that I was going to leave my kids alone with an alcoholic mother. Mm. I could not digest that. I was left alone with an alcoholic aunt, you know, a family that was full of rage and abuse. And I was like, <clears throat> You know, it's back to what Gus said. You know, I was like, if it is one thing that I do, I am not going to leave these children the way I was left. I am not doing that. So whatever I have to do, I don't have to, I don't care if I have to go to 12-step meetings every day and have therapy five days a week and do this, do that. I just didn't care. And part of that was why I turned toward yoga because I thought 
this whole thing, this whole fashion world, which, you know, is the same on Instagram now, I, it's not truth. Mm. Like, thank God for people like you who actually speak truth on Instagram, because it's so, it's so, like, if I see one more so-called breath person on Instagram, I'm going to throw up on my feet because it's like, what lineage do you have? And, you know, with you, I know you have a lineage because you've been practicing since you were eight, Mm. you know, and my mother practiced. My mother has a 50 year long practice, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we have this, we have this lineage of, you know, women who are witches in our family, women who went off the beaten track, went into un- uncharted Terry. And you know what they were? They were herbalists. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they were healers. Yeah. You know, so the, the thing is that back to if you don't begin with breath, it doesn't happen. And it's fascinating because... One of the things that's not part of this book that is a conversation that mom and I had was there was a professor um, who he was a Stanislavski expert and Stanislavski, his entire method, there are massive texts about this, took from the yogic tradition. Mm relaxation, breathing, feeling your prana. I mean, he uses that word prana. Stanislavski, for people who don't know, he's yeah. one of the, basically the... The greatest acting, creative acting mind in the world. Right. He sort of... An influential on Lee Strasberg. He Lee Strasberg, yeah. who started the actor's studio. Yeah. Julia Kazan, right? Yeah, Exactly. So it's very much in the actor's studio for anyone who doesn't know. It's not just James Lipton doing interviews on. No, it's totally not that. That's the Instagram. But the actor's studio is a profound acting gymnasium headquarters. Yeah, Yeah, it's a gymnasium for actors, real actors. Yeah. And it's all, quote unquote, we could. For a super layman's point of view, we could call it method acting. Yeah. Which essentially means you're creating your character, your performance based on something called inner life. Yeah. It's based on something called effective memory, which is experience Uh that's buried in deep inside. Right. So you're not like coming at the performance from the perspective of I'm a guy robbing a bank right you come from the perspective of who is the person who finds themselves in this scene of robbing a bank yeah and, and who, who am, am i, I? And, yeah exactly and what have i experienced in my life that informs that what that looks like so i want to say that all of that is in the book but what's fascinating about uncharted territory it's called life lessons from the theater is when i started writing it with her 
Um, I thought it was just a book for actors. And then what I realized was that she was talking about how to live an authentic life that is driven by your purpose. Because my mm. mother had a purpose. Mm-hmm. It was theater. Right. Not movies, but theater. And... Well, I feel like even deeper than that, theater was this vehicle for her purpose in discovering her humanity. Yeah, that's completely true. Yeah. After her humanity was robbed from her, from her early childhood experiences. But the entire book, like, I'm I'm just going to read you the chapters of the book real quick because it's so interesting. Contents. It says, be a maverick, you the instrument. Curiosity creates backbone, discipline and discovery. Mm. Follow your North Star. Fear is fertile ground. When in peril, stick to the script. Abandonment won't kill you. Survival basics. Cry if you must, but problem solve. Transformation can be accidental. Don't make a move until you have to. Change plans. Do something useful. Go to the horse's mouth. The words you speak affect your body. Integrate everything. Know where you're going. Mm, Love that. Love those. So they're not... It ended up being a book that was really for anyone who... Wanted to go in on uncharted territory and feel good and be successful at it. Because, you know, there's this thing in America where success is about money and fame. And certainly it's really good to make a lot of money. Like I would much prefer to have you know, hundred thousand dollars in my bank as opposed to a hundred. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is not something I do anymore. Thank God it never gets back down to a hundred, but you know, I have days where it's going under a thousand, you know, and I'm okay with that. I don't judge my bank account. My, my self value is not based on my bank account, Mm. but what I want to say is that, um, you know, success, what is success, Evan? What do you think success is? <laughs> um, I mean, I talk about this all the time. I would say success is living your, your soul's passion living your soul's desire of evolving and experiencing you know i don't think it's i think you said it best it's not your your self value is not linked to your bank account i think we have a real issue with that in western culture and for me a successful life has really been about listening, learning how to listen and follow my inner guide. 
Mm. which I would say is my soul or whatever it might be. I don't really know what it is. Could be my soul, could be just God, the universe moving through me. But that is the only thing that has ever left me with lasting fulfillment and helping me cultivate true happiness in my life. Hmm. It's interesting because now that I'm older, for me, success, and I know, I don't know if this is my mother's version of success. I know for me, success means feeling whole. Yeah, a thousand percent. And being able to understand what makes me feel whole and what doesn't. Because, you know, as you get older and wiser, uh, you need less chaos. Yeah. And you need many fewer lessons. And I think for my mother, when we went through the process of finishing up this book and getting it published, I think for my mother at the age of 96, um, this book, her version of success, what I could see was this incredible body of work, creative output, this curiosity that has always been part of her through line and her drive. Um, I think for... For her, that's success. And I think it's kind of like at different points in your life, you have different success. Yeah, I think Like it when you went to the different. NFL, that was a big success, right? Yeah, totally. Or when I, you know, won awards as an editor, that was a big success then. But so I think for me, success is a feeling space yeah for sure that's why i say to me that's directly linked to in my experience following this inner guide that compels me forward into various spaces <laughs> that's so good you know it's like and that is not comfortable yeah that is not always you know following that entails doing a lot of shit that i'm like oh god i gotta do that right you know but if i don't do that thing that my mind is going oh, i really don't want to do that if i don't do that thing i'm abandoning that inner sense yeah which then leaves me feeling porous unfulfilled, unhappy, you know? Yeah. Desiring, wanting, resentful, shamed, shameful, guilty, whatever, you know? Right. So for me, that's really what, at this stage in my life, living a successful life is about continuing to listen to that inner guide and getting better and better at just going. Right. Right. And spending less time 
meandering around oh well do i have to is that really it because i i'm getting pretty good at knowing like yeah this is the way yeah this is gonna work this is the thing that has to be done yeah this is where i'm going next this is how i'm feeling about this you know and just continuing to sharpen that that touchstone of well i think this is where this is this is the destiny. It's of a my practice life. of getting to know. This is what you should do. Mm-hmm. Like, I think one of the fundaments of yoga is getting uncomfortable <laughs> and doing it anyway. Yeah, completely. Like, this morning, I thought I, I wanted to go to this teacher's class who I know is really amazing. And I got up and I thought I've just spent five weeks of doing like 18,000. I did 61 classes in five weeks. And I thought, I really don't want to do this. I really don't want to do any yoga practice. Uh And I thought, well, that's okay. You don't have to want to do it. You can just go do it. Mm. And I'm telling you, I went and... And this strange thing happened where I had this understanding of who I am as a yogi, Mm. like what my language is. Because today as a yogi, my teaching is more my practice. Mm. Like, I don't care if I can do fancy postures. It's fun. But my teaching, what I can pass along to other people. I mean, this book is a yoga for me. You know, it was a way of getting information that's so precious and such a treasure out into the world. I mean, who gets to hear from a 96-year-old sage of the American theater directly from the horse's mouth? Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, so, but, you know, I didn't want to spend another three weeks with mom <laughs> once we won the prize and we had, a t- had to edit the book. Uh-huh. I thought that's just too much work to do. Yeah. But, you know, I did. And I didn't want to go. So I think there's something in the yogic way, like it's it's really a problem for me that people consider uh yoga is sort of don't worry be happy right you know um there is you know it is there's an interesting thing though because it takes a lot of discernment to get to the place where because sometimes it's really important to go this isn't for me yes Exactly. You know, I don't like it, but yeah. like deeper than that, this isn't for me. This Ex- isn't an alignment with Oh me my, my God. Life. I think to me that's a sex- successful human. Totally. If and you, discerning yeah. when it's like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But yeah. I have to do that. Yeah. Those you are know? very different things. Yeah, they're totally Knowing different. this isn't for me versus this is going to make me uncomfortable. I really don't want to do it. 
And I think that only gets honed. That discernment only gets honed through experience. That's been my, that's been my experience is that that learning how to discern the difference between those two things right. has only been trained through just getting on the field and doing it. Yeah. I've done so much of holding myself in places where I'm actually not meant to be. Yeah. That I've come and I know the things that I'll come up against that I don't really want to do it. But so when stopped, we'll wrap this up here in a minute. Yeah. I just want to say this. Um, so, because I'm weird mom groupie and I love to take your class. I remember one day, I don't know, it was like 104 degrees in the room at 50% humidity in there. It was like hell, 30 people <laughs> and everybody was falling apart. And you said very serenely, if you're falling apart, just touch back into your discipline. Mm. And you didn't even say just breathe, which, you know, most instructors would say. But touching back into discipline, to me, success is based on what do you have the discipline for. Uh And the, so in yoga, They say that the highest form of yoga, Raja yoga, is something called jnana yoga. It's spelled J-N-A-N-A, jnana yoga. And it means um, the jnana is basically the yoga of studying. Mm. And so studying and discernment are are hand in hand. One feeds the other. You study so you can discern. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what you study. It, but, right. but the result is discernment. And so the other thing that uh, the brilliant professor Chris Chapel, Dr. Chapel at Loyola Marymount University, which has the only yoga philosophy, science, and therapeutics department in the world. That's where I got my master's degree. Um, He talks about how the purpose of yoga is to cultivate discernment. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's a subtle thing. Yeah. You know, even our likes, like where do our likes come from? Where do our needs come from? Where do our wants come from? Where do our dislikes come from? Uh And so what's interesting is if you look at the niyamas, how you treat others and how you treat yourself, the fundament of that practice is cultivating discernment through the discipline of studying yourself. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what my mother taught me. 
Mm. Love that. It's fundamentally what my mother taught me. Yeah. How do you take disparate pieces, bring them into your body and become whole and creative? Yeah. Well, you got to go into uncharted territory. So things get shaken up and you start learning. Mm. So, you know, my thing, my, my thesis title, if you're in chaos, I'm happy for you. That's my truth. It's a big truth, mom. And now I need to take a nap. You're going to take a nap before a red eye? Just a little one. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Mom. You're welcome. Love you tons. I love you tons. It was a great convo. I wouldn't be able to live without you and your brother. Same, And Sandy and Kitty and (laughs) all of that. Um, Well... Everybody check out mom's book, Uncharted Territory, Life Lessons from the Theater. It's available on Amazon. Available on Amazon. There's a, There will be a link in the show notes for that. Um, that's about it. Thank you, mom. You're welcome. I love you. I love you. <laughs> we'll see you all next time. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Lots of love, everybody. Ciao, ciao. Peace.